Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Lillian Nakagawa, a member of the club's Asia-Pacific Affairs Forum and your chair for today. We also welcome our listening audience, and we invite everyone to visit us online at www.commonwealthclub.org. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Dr. John Neeters. Dr. Neeters will be talking today on electroacupuncture for the treatment of neurodegenerative diseases. Dr. Neeters is a doctor of acupuncture and oriental medicine, a licensed acupuncturist, and serves as a diplomat mate on the National Board of Acupuncture Orthopedics. He served as president of the Academy of Chinese Culture and Health Sciences from 2011 to 2015. He is the owner of Alameda Acupuncture, where he has practiced for the last 20 years. Please join me in welcoming Dr. John Neeters to the podium. Thank you. Thank you. Can you all hear me okay? A little loud? You're okay? Okay, good. So I'm going to take you through about 2,500 years of history in 40 minutes, uh, because if I don't give you a little background, nothing else will make sense. If you don't, if I were speaking to a group of acupuncturists, I could start with the current day. But I really need to give you a little bit of historical perspective so that it makes sense. Now, I'm going to talk about neurodegenerative diseases, and I'm going to talk about some specifics in those. But I'm not going to go into specific treatment protocols because they wouldn't make sense, right? If I said we need a large intestine 11 and lung 5 at 100, yeah, see, it would make no, your eyes are already spinning around, right? So I'm not going to go into that type of specific. What I'm going to talk about is generally why it works, how it works, um, and just go into methodologies a bit. And I hope you have lots of questions, and I'm going to warn you, they cut me off. They, they have had to throw me out every time I've been here. It's seven or eight times, and they always come in and pretty much physically drag me out. So if you have questions, ask them quick. Ask them right at the beginning of the question and answer period, because otherwise you might not get them. Now, you probably won't get all of your questions answered, so I'm going to introduce a few people who can be here to answer your questions. They have no idea this is what I'm going to do with them. Back in that corner, would you stand up, please? That's Dr. Jennifer Neeters. Uh, Jenny is uh, the best orthopedic and sports medicine acupuncturist I've ever worked with. She works with professional college, high school, um, and amateur athletes, not just for injuries, but also to increase sports performance, the Raiders, etc. Next to her is Beth Walker-Graham who is, uh, coming to, is in our office as an acupuncturist, and will be there. We have historically kept very limited hours. So Beth has rounded those out, so we'll have evening hours finally. So that's great. We love having her on board. Over here is Karen Villanueva. Karen, stand up. Come on. Karen is a researcher, uh, a registered nurse, an acupuncturist, and a researcher at UCSF doing some great programs. And next to her is Emily Laughlin, and Emily is an acupuncturist and just got her acupuncture license. Give her a hand. So if you have questions about acupuncture or what we do, what we don't do, you can grab them as well as, as myself if we have times after, time afterwards. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the things up here. Uh, they called it neurodegenerative diseases, but it's more than that. I also want to talk to a little bit about traumatic brain injury, which is actually what we treat the best. Um, we get uh, very good results with Parkinson's, phenomenal rates with MS. Stroke, when I get into the stroke stuff, you won't believe me. You actually, you'll go, no, this guy, that can't be true. Um, and then concussion, traumatic injury, and dementia. So we'll go through those. So... I want, first, I want to give you a little bit of background. Most of what I'm going to talk about isn't taught in acupuncture school. 99%. If you go to your medical doctor and ask them about this, they'll have no idea. 
about the specifics and not even much about the generalities. But what you need to be aware of, this is not a theory. This is not theoretical. It's not a new age concept at all. There are tens of thousands of studies on electroacupuncture alone that have been done in the last five years tens of thousands, and hundreds of thousands of studies on acupuncture and electroacupuncture. It's just, there's nobody advertising it. There's no money in it, right? So it doesn't get pushed to the front in terms of understanding in the United States. Other countries, Germany, France, uh, South Korea, um, South Korean uh, medical doctors actually have lower stature than acupuncturists do. And the acupuncturists get paid more. So this is kind of, you know, U.S. is their own little iconoclastic place. Um, so acupuncture was fully developed, fully developed, and spoken about over 2,000 years ago in the Huangdi Neijing. Uh, they laid out the point usage. They laid out how it wa was to be used and the locations. And it's been the standard in Southeast Asia ever since. But a little other perspective, how many remember Utsi the Iceman? Anybody? Okay. So Utsi, if you go to the Smithsonian, there's actually a display there of all of his stuff and a fake mummy of him. And one of the things they point out very clearly is they have brought in experts who show that Utsi was getting acupuncture. Now think about that for a second. He had the t points tattooed on his body to treat the specific conditions that they found when they autopsied him. And he had lines tattooed for the acupuncture meridians 6,000 years ago in the Italian Alps. Yeah, how old is this? Nobody knows. Nobody has any idea. Um, Ayurvedic medicine uh, discovered this energetic system about 5,000 years ago. The Mayans called the system the wind and the channels. The Incas called it the rivers of light, which is the one I like best because that's what it feels like to me. Um, but when I say they, um, many cultures discovered them, they didn't invent them and they didn't create them. These are actual systems in your body that they just mapped out and, and worked with because they're real, they're substantial. In the West, we call them nerves. <laughs> and in one, one aspect, and I'm not saying this is the only aspect of acupuncture. One of the things that baffles scientists is it does so many things, they can't really put them all in one basket. But one thing we do know is that 323 out of 324 points that were dissected, right? They opened somebody up and they mapped out the nerves. 323 out of 324 points are directly over nerves and usually over nerve bifurcations, okay? And so um, they knew something. I, I told this to a young acupuncturist recently and he was really bummed out. He said, oh my God, that takes all the magic out of it. And I said, are you nuts? 2,000 years ago, they mapped out the entire nervous system. They didn't do that in Europe until a few, <laughs> few hundred years ago. By the way, the Chinese also had completely mapped the cardiovascular system over 2,000 years ago, which happened in Europe in the book that was published, I think, in 1628, William Harvey's opus on blood circulation, right? About four, 1,600 years behind, behind the Chinese. It's fascinating. How did they do that? I have my theory. Any of you watch the show Ancient Aliens? Right? <laughs> it's as good a theory as anything. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to give you a quick history of neurological acupuncture. So the Chinese and all of Southeast Asia was using fine filiform needles, tiny, tiny needles, to stimulate points 2,000 years ago. But they didn't have electricity. So in the mid-1900s, basically, electroacupuncture uh, became uh, very popular. And so with electroacupuncture, you put needles in points, and then you hook wires to them, plug it into a box, and you get the selective frequency, right, how rapidly it goes, and an intensity to stimulate those points. And so then the research just really opened up. Uh, there's a guy named Vohl, if you ever want to check this out. Uh, German did over 10,000 studies looking at specifically what the effects were from different acupuncture points. One of my, f my favorite guy, though, is Dr. Han, who in Beijing in the 50s did a ton of experiments. And some of the people that he was working with did the classic, classic study. They took two mice 
And apparently, I've never done this, but apparently the way you tell when, a, when a, the pain threshold has been reached in a mouse, you shine a hot light at their nose, and when they turn away from whatever activity, then you've hit the threshold of pain. So what they did was brilliant. They did electroacupuncture on one of the mice. No pain. He got like four times the length before he turned his nose. Okay, well, they knew that would happen. What they did next was absolutely brilliant. They took cerebrospinal fluid out of that mouse and injected it into the spine of the other mouse, and that mouse then had the same threshold of pain. So that proved that what was happening around pain was actually happening from chemical release in the central nervous system itself. So that started a whole new um, series of studies. And what, one of the things Dr. Han did that was amazing, he mapped out these specific acupuncture frequencies. And I'm going to show you these in a few minutes. The specific frequencies to cause the release of specific neurotransmitters in the spine, but more importantly, in the brain. Right? So if you're doing one frequency, you get a release of beta endorphins. Another frequency, you get oxytocin. Another one, you get dopamine, etc. And he mapped out those frequencies. <clears throat> now, I don't, how many of you, anybody ever seen a procedure, a, a medical or surgical procedure in China? Okay. See this book? This is kind of a fun book. Acupuncture Anesthesia. Because if you watch a procedure, actually acupuncture came to the United States and became popularized because the press secretary for Richard Nixon, when Nixon was in China, opening up China in 76, his press secretary watched uh, a surgery where someone was getting an appendectomy, getting their appendix taken out, and they had no anesthesia at all, no drugs at all. It was all done with acupuncture. And if you go through here, it talks about a lot of theory, but then it says, these are the points to use for eye surgery, neck surgery, anal surgery, spinal surgery, uh, removal of an ovary, whole lists. So very rarely do they use anesthesia in China, and when they do, it's an amount a fraction of what they use in the United States. And what that does, because anesthesia slows the healing process, as well as being dangerous in and of itself. So if they can reduce that by 100%, but even 60 or 70%, the recovery time is going to be much less. One of my teachers was a cardiac surgeon in China, and he said, yeah, he did most of his cardiac surgeries with no anesthesia. Occasionally, they need a little bit, and they would immediately put the patient on an herbal drip and the time in the hospital was one-third what it had been if they tried, just used Western technology. So anyway, it's kind of cool. Anything you want to do in terms of having something taken out, we're all ready. <laughs> then Zhao Shunfa, who was one of my teachers, um, in the 30s, was, he discovered that in working with a bunch of neurologists, and he was a neurologist and acupuncturist, that if you needle points on the scalp, now this is a different system, if you needle points on the scalp, it actually affects the part of the brain located beneath it. So he mapped out all of the points that you would use for different conditions that are on the head. And when you combine this system with another system I'm going to show you, it's amazing what you can do in terms of uh, neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, then at UC Irvine at the Susan Samueli Center, uh, I've got some great researchers down there who were doing acupuncture and would do PET scans and functional MRIs of people's brains while they were doing the acupuncture so they could see the changes that would happen. So for PTSD patients, the part of the brain that would respond um, to that experience that they were having with the PTSD and would flood them with uh, stress-inducing chemicals the blood flow would go down. The part of the brain where you're getting the release of natural opioids and endorphins and all the stuff that makes you feel good, that part got brighter. And so they just looked at all of the brain changes that would happen. And then Michael Corradino created what he calls neuropuncture. And in this very simple book, he looks at 
the specific points to use for a variety of conditions. But the really cool thing is that he also uh, published the list of the um, very specific uh, neurotransmitters that get released. And then Pony Chang uh, has done thousands of dissection studies where he's opening it up and looking at the nerve and mapping the point to the nerve. So, for example, in acupuncture, there's a series of points on the gallbladder channel. Each one of those stimulates a different motor nerve. So if I, I, and I do this a lot, I put a needle here. If I put a little, touch it with an electrical device, you'll do that. And there are a variety of motor uh, functions that we can cause to have happen. Now, that's actually very valuable. One, it tells us that we're getting the motor nerve stimulated. But more importantly, for my work, so that's important for Jenny's work. She's working with those motor points. What I want to know is if it's hitting the nerve, you don't want to pierce the nerve. You want to go like here. I, we actually pluck it. We pull the nerve out of the way, put the needle in, and then let the nerve go, and it rests against the needle, right? And so then you get a very powerful stimulus that is feeding up through the spinal column into the brain. <clears throat> so there are many different kinds of nerves or neurons, and I'm just going to make two distinctions today. Motor neurons that fire a muscle, right? And sensory neurons that send that message back up the spinal column to the brain. Often these are in what are called neurovascular bundles. So they're, in the body, there are only small spaces for the nerves and the blood vessels to go, so they often bundle together. So you'll get a blood vessel, a motor, and a sensory aspect of the nervous system all bundled together. And so we, again, we can and do stimulate motor neurons for, and nerves for orthopedic and sports medicine. We also stimulate local points to release what they call the soup uh, to speed healing dramatically. And then we use sensory neurons to feed back huh, to the spine and the brain. And that's our topic today. So that causes the release of neurotransmitters and other chemicals to cause a myriad of changes in the physiology and mental functioning. Anybody want to guess what the number one condition treated by acupuncture in the United States is? What do you, huh? Headaches. Headaches, that's a good guess. It's way up on the list. Anything else? Back pain. Back pain was number one until a few years ago, and then it got passed by anxiety. The number one thing we treat is anxiety. I have so many therapists that refer patients to me for anxiety. In fact, I've had them say, if you won't get acupuncture, I won't even see you because it's a waste of time. So it's very effective for anxiety. Uh, the soup. Um, this is the local effect. If you put a needle in, you get a response. And there's a release of about 15 different chemicals, including the ones that I put up here. Adenosine is the big energy molecule. Um, substance P is a pain-related one. But anyway, there are about 15 of those that will get stimulated in there. If you do electroacupuncture, it's even a stronger stimulus, and it gets flooded, just flooded with healing chemicals. That's a local response. So uh, here, if, you, if we want to hit this, that's uh, the radial, superficial radial nerve, and that will feed right back up here to the spine. Uh, the lateral antebrachial, again, feeds right back into the seg segment. What's important for my work is I can hit different elements here with the right frequency and the right points, and it's going to feed right up into the brain. So one point, should not have taken those shrooms, I guess, huh? Um, okay, so I'm not going to talk about this much. This is more her, her work, but the brachial plexus. Um, so if we needle nerves, we can put one needle from here into here. We get the radial nerve and the median nerve. That feeds up, and there are five nerve roots coming out in your neck that are called the brachial plexus. That hits all of them. So we can use electroacupuncture there to flood the spine with pain-relieving um, neurotransmitters. So the, what often happens in our clinic is my wife is really busy, and someone will be in pain, and they'll say, I, I need to get in right, to, right away. And I'll say, okay. So they'll come in. I'll do one of my treatments, which causes opioid and endorphin release, and they get out of pain for three days. And then they can get in to see her, and she fixes the injury. Right? But it's a nice, nice combination to have. Um, 
And so then you get this beta endorphin release, which activates something called the paraactoidal gray. And I'll show you a picture of that in a minute. But anyway, each of these plexuses stimulates a different part of the body. So here again, 233 out of 234 acupuncture points were over nerves and bifurcations. Uh, and that'll carry the, the nerve impulse up the spine to the central nervous system. And they'll connect to those plexuses. Now, one question. Now, maybe you acupuncturists may have had this question. Maybe you've, you're probably much smarter than I am, figured it out years ago. But I just found out something. So in acupuncture school, we learned that the most powerful points are the five, the first five points on a channel, or the last, but the, the most distal points, five of them. And it's like, why would that be? And all kinds of theories. Oh, it's leverage, it's balance, it's whatever it is. Well, when you get out to the, the fingertips and the toe tips, they're filled with capillary beds. Around the capillary beds are smooth muscles. And if you stimulate those, they immediately trigger an autonomic nervous system response, which brings your stress down. It's amazing. So at someone's blood um, heart rate of like 100 and how much? 110, uh, did a set of points, and it immediately came down into the 70s. I don't mean a half hour. I mean immediately down into the 70s. And at the end of the treatment, it was even lower. So these are immediate things that happen from stimulating those points. And that's a little separate from the other things I was talking about. And you don't need this here. Um, microcurrent versus millicurrent. Um, if you're stimulating locally, you use one set of current, which is called micro, which is you know uh, one millionth of an amp, and that speaks to the body at pretty much the frequency that the body speaks to itself, and so it really stimulates healing. We use millicurrent to stimulate the muscles and the sensory apparatus. So here's the magic chart. If you want to stimulate natural killer cells, you use four hertz, so that's four cycles per second, nice and slow. You want beta endorphins for pain, two to four hertz. Dynorphins, 100 hertz, that's another painkiller. The really cool ones, 5-HTP, that's a serotonin and a melatonin precursor. So if you can't sleep, if you're depressed, we hook you up at 15 to 20 hertz. Oxytocin. You all know oxytocin? It's the bonding chemical. It's what bonds mom to their babies. It bonds people in relationships to each other. They release oxytocin. You can buy oxytocin spray to help your relationships. Or you can do a little acupuncture. <laughs> or you can be nice to your partner. Whatever. But, um, but what's really handy is oxytocin also helps in labor. And before I understood this, we would do labor inductions. And they were very, very successful. Since I've started using this frequency with the same points, we have not had a patient that did not go into labor. Okay? So that's how powerful it is. Because you're not just stimulating everything else that we knew we were doing, you're also getting an oxytocin burst. Uh, dopamine, very handy for Parkinson's disease and also for the reward chemical, uh, and nitric, nitric oxide synthase to heal skin tissue. So here, again, don't memorize it. They've said there's no quiz today, so you're all good. Um, but here, I don't have a pointer. So we're sending a message up. And so it goes to the hypothalamus, which then floods this area, which is called the paraactoductal gray, which, stim which blocks this. And it blocks the pain signal that was coming down into the spinal column. And that's very quick. We're talking a matter of minutes to cause that effect. Um, so we can do serotonin pathways or dopamine pathways. These are some facial points that could be used. And I mentioned Zhao Shunfa, this guy, and he realized, again, that the points were directly over the areas of the brain that were being affected. And this line right here is called the motor point line. So if someone comes in uh, with Parkinson's tremors, you hit that. How long did it take to work with your relative? Minutes, her arm went like this to, I'm fine. And that lasted a few hours. The second time it lasted for a week. 
So that's very simple and very, and that wasn't electroacupuncture, that was just straight acupuncture. Electro would be more powerful. So again, it's lying over these various mapped areas of the brain. But let's get into treat neurological injury, okay? So we want to release the right neurotransmitters, right? And they're different for each neurological condition. They're different in Parkinson's they are, than they are from MS, and that's different than stroke. And so we can needle the fingertips to get to the center of the brain. We increase the blood flow to the areas that need to have it increased. So if there's a dopamine problem, we're working on that system. If there's depression, we're working on the serotonin systems, etc. So how does that work again? One of my favorite shows, I don't know, last year or the year before, was the um, Einstein series. Did any of you see that? about Albert Einstein, but my favorite quote from that is a reporter said, uh, Dr. Einstein, what does it feel like to be the most intelligent man on the planet? And he said, I don't know, go ask Tesla, right? <laughs> Nikola Tesla. And what he said, and Einstein said he was the most intelligent person on the planet, if you want to find the secrets of universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. What are we talking about with electroacupuncture? Energy, frequency, very specific frequencies, and vibration. That's what we're talking about. That's so. If you get the right point, if you get the right nerve, you apply the right amount of energy, frequency, and vibration, it actually looks kind of magical sometimes. With her treating, you know, she does international rugby competitions. Uh, she's St. Mary's... Um, Rug, uh, rugby teams, acupuncturists, and I'll watch these people walk in like this, right? And they walk out like this. It's really, it's almost instantaneous. She gets the good stuff. I get the chronic things. Uh, this guy wrote a very interesting book, uh, Jerry Tennant, called Healing is Voltage. And he added that my book doesn't have the, I don't think, yeah. This one says Healing is Voltage, the handbook. His new edition says, healing is voltage, acupuncture muscle batteries. Because he went back and he started doing some research on acupuncture and realized that that's how what he's talking about works. The body, the body cells, if you look at the structure, look like capacitors and batteries. And it's that charging and discharging that he talks about. So this is a fascinating book and a pretty easy read if you want to learn more about um, uh, energetic medicine. And he says that each organ has a specific voltage. When it gets too low, you're diseased. If it gets too high, it causes some other problems. And if you can get the voltage right on a particular organ, then it's much more likely to heal. Okay, some conditions treated. We treat pretty much everything. <laughs> uh, some we treat better than others. But let's look at a couple here. By the way, this is the only time in the history of my public speaking, which goes back many, many years and thousands of pre presentations, I'm ahead of schedule. <laughs> my wife didn't believe it was possible. <laughs> All right, so Parkinson's disease, you get a development of what are called Lewy bodies. It's like Alzheimer's, the tangles that, you know, the neurofibular tangles. Um, in Parkinson's, those develop in a particular area, the substantia nigra. And it impedes the production of dopamine, which is the reward chemical. Um, and the drug treatments like carb carbidopa, levodopa, increase dopamine levels, which helps for a while, but then it burns out the receptors. So there's a certain span of time during which it's effective, and then it starts to lose its effectiveness. So if you can do the treatment without those, even if you only manage the treatment to not get worse, at least you can push back the need for the levodopa or carbidopa by 10 or 15 years. And that's a huge change, huge change. Um, the, yeah, I'll get to that later. Okay, so the first symptoms are often mild. And when I, I do a very long intake with my patients, hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half for the first time, and I do a pretty thorough Western exam as well as a Chinese medical exam. My training's integrated. And I'm constantly looking for any, I watch my patients as they walk down the hallway 
to see their gait, see if they have a gait disturbance. I'm looking for resting tremor while I'm talking to them. I'll hand them things and make them reach to see if they have an intentional tremor. I don't tell them I'm doing all this stuff. Um, sometimes I'll just start with a twitch, right? A little twitch. Michael J. Fox said it was, I think, his thumb kept twitching. Um, but gradually it becomes debilitating. You get loss of balance with falling, uh, rigid facial expression, the, one, the arms will freeze, you, they basically don't move when you walk, and then severe tremors. In Chinese medicine, it's a wilting leg chi, and often there's injury at a particular site on the foot. Uh, the woman that runs the Parkinson's Recovery Project, brilliant woman, a little bit out there, but her book is up to 800 pages. It's available free online. It's the Parkinson's Recovery Pro uh, Project. And she says, I don't, I don't remember the exact numbers, but well over 95% of the patients that she's worked with that have Parkinson's had an injury at that site. And so when I'm doing my intake, again, I don't tell patients what I'm doing. I'm looking to see if they have pain at those points and then pre-treat them. Um, now, for Parkinson's, electroacupuncture and acupuncture are very, very powerful for the symptoms. Actually, for the, the underlying problems, I, pre I prefer to use some herbs with it also. It's more effective uh, long term. And so again, here's the motor line. This is what we would stimulate to stop the tremors. And then for the deeper problems, we would be stimulating points typically on the arms to feed up into the brain, up into the hypothalamus. Multiple sclerosis. Uh, this is a demyelating disease uh, where you get areas of white matter that you can see in the brain or the spinal column. Um, usually, the, usually, this is changing. They call it relapsing, remitting, progressive, or, uh, or, prog or progressive. It's immune-mediated, and the first symptom is often visual disturbance. So when I pain, patients come in, they say, yeah, I'm kind of seeing some double vision occasionally you're going to your doctor immediately. And they're not worried about it. It's like, yeah, it just happens once in a while. That's typically the first symptom. And patients tend to kind of blow it off a little bit. But they can have almost any neurological sign. But eventually, they're going to get problems with strength and muscle spasms. And again, with MS, we get tremendous success. Now, there are tons of theories, and I didn't leave that slide in here, about what causes MS. And what seems to be the case is that there are a lot of things that can contribute to MS. Uh, people with MS have much higher percentages of those people have Epstein-Barr virus, but not everybody with Epstein-Barr um, gets MS, and not everybody with MS has Epstein-Barr. But there's a very high correlation. Uh, some people have tortuous veins, so the blood stagnates as it's going through the, the brain. And so iron, which is very, very uh, heating, inflammatory. You need it to carry oxygen, but in the areas where the, the veins are tortuous, it's like a river. You know how the silt gets deposited in one area because the current is slower? Same thing happens in the brain. And so the iron stays just a little bit longer in that area, and it can fry that area. And this, there's, an, there's a medical doctor whose wife had MS, and he did surgery on the veins, and her MS symptoms went away. I've only had two patients do that surgery. Uh, one, it didn't help at all, and one got 100% better within a month, right? So what is it, right? I have another patient who went to Tacoma, um, got a $25,000 um, visit with a dentist who spent 12 hours with her the first day uh, working on jaw alignment and then four hours the next day fitting her with an appliance. And she had come to me in a walker. She, she was barely, barely hanging out. We had gotten her to a cane, okay? But she was still having symptoms. But she had definitely gotten uh, improvement. When she came back from seeing him, she threw her cane away. So we don't know what causes MS. But it looks like it's multi-causational, and uh, we haven't figured it all out yet. But fortunately, we do a pretty good job treating it. Uh, next thing I wanted to talk about is concussion and traumatic brain injury. Um, and then I'm going to get to stroke, which are very closely related, obviously. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. So my wife, Jennifer, treating the rugby team, she's doing all their, you know, aches and pains and muscle sprains and strains. But when they have concussions, they come to me. And I find that way, way too often uh, those kids are cleared to go back and play because I'm doing different tests on them. And they're often going back too early. It's a little frightening. And concussions, as we know from the National Football League, it's one of the biggest topics out there. Uh, CTE um, is uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. When they examined the brains, they found 99% of the people who donated their brains, now these people were, thought they were sick, so I'm not saying 99% of all football players, 99% we're developing severe dementia, anger problems, suicide. In fact, there have been, I don't know how many players, but there are a lot who've committed suicide by shooting themselves in the heart so they could donate their brains. This is a huge area. And they're finding CTE in high school players. They're finding it in boxers. It's not just football. Rugby players, uh, soccer players heading the ball improperly. Um, and again, injury. So I'm very careful with my concussive patients. Um, and one of the things that happens is gross underdiagnosis. I have one patient who's very bright, very bright woman, architect, has her own firm, just brilliant. Got in a car accident, got a whiplash. Doctor said you're, she had a concussion. Doctor said, cleared her, said you're fine. Her life went completely downhill. It was just a mess. Her, her hormones were off. She couldn't think. She couldn't run her business. And the doctor kept saying, you're fine. Fortunately, she got a good attorney. And the attorney, rather than sending her for a normal MRI, sent her for what's called a DTI, which is diffuser tensor imaging. So it's like an MRI on steroids. And it showed that her brain had actually shifted on its axis and the cella tersica, which is part of the brain that keeps the pituitary in place, had dropped out and her pituitary had dropped. And once the pituitary drops or is damaged, th that controls most of your body systems in terms of endocrine systems, uh, thyroid, follicle-stimulating hormone, the, the adrenals, et cetera, the kidneys. So um, fortunately, we've been able to get a lot of function back on her first. She was having visual problems, so we stimulated the visual cortex. She was having speech problems, so we're able to get rid of that. And it was fascinating. And I didn't think about that. I, was, I, I blew it. I didn't think about it right away. And then she repeated her symptoms to me, and I said, oh, the visual stuff. So then I stimulated uh, the visual cortex back here. Fine. She was good. And that was my fault because we went a few months before I really put those two things together. So she's doing better, but she'll never be normal. So the takeaway from that, if you or someone you know is in a car accident and they get a whiplash, do not trust the medical opinion, right? Get an attorney, have them do uh, DTI, have them checked out because these things can linger and linger and linger. Um, you get the dreaded soft tissue injury. Like if you break a bone, insurance will pay pretty well. If you get a severe whiplash, they'll give you X amount of time and then you have to be well. Well, about 20 years ago, there was a study that came out and they had tracked a significant number of people who had gotten whiplash injuries, were totally cleared, and they went in and did autopsies of the spine and the neck and the upper back and found thousands, thousands of microcirculatory blockages, right? Little blood clots all through here, which wouldn't show effectively on the other scans, on the MRIs. So don't take anything like that lightly. If you hurt your neck, I have patients that hurt their necks 20 years ago, and that's, we can directly trace their problems back to that. So take it very seriously. Um, stroke. I've been very blessed in my life and in my career to study with some astonishing people. Uh, and when people who know Chinese medicine 
ask me who I studied with, it's like, oh, yeah, you don't really want to know. And they go, no, who'd you study with? And so I'll mention, oh, I don't have his picture, Zhao Shunfa. I'm, I'm sorry, which is the guy I mentioned there, this guy, who is one of the best-known stroke doctors, and then Shi Min. And Shi Min was in charge of the largest stroke hospital in China, and they have a lot of strokes in China. They've got a pretty big population. So they did, the World Health Organization kept statistics, and they found that the effective rate was very similar for the three different types of strokes they were looking at. Cerebral hemorrhage, where you get a bleed, a cerebral infarction, where it's blocked, and then ischemic bulbar paralysis. And they found the overall effective rate was over 98%. That, according to the World Health Organization, his hospital had the highest rate of post-stroke recovery of any hospital anywhere in the world doing any type of medicine. And he doesn't even do herbs. All he does is acupuncture in his clinic. The highest success rate in the world. He, uh, there was a movie made about him. It's called 9,000 Needles, which is kind of fun, kind of, kind of fun to look at. Um, Anyway, this is just was one thing. And the last thing I want to talk about a little bit, pretty quickly, because I'm going to be right on time, is dementia. Uh, the number one fear of my patient, number one fear for women is breast cancer. Number two is dementia. Number one fear of my male patients is dementia. Okay, across the board. Uh, it's increasing dramatically. There were studies that came out of um, Mexico and Mexico City. Uh, they, had, they took quite a few dogs that had died. They did autopsies or necropsies, whatever you do on a dog, and they found every one of them had Alzheimer's disease. They were finding Alzheimer's disease in young adults, 20, 25 years old, and they were able to pin it back to a part, uh, particulate size of uh, air quality. And so air quality causes dementia among the other many things that do. And so the three major types that we think of usually are Alzheimer's, where you get uh, the neural uh, tangles, Lewy body dementia, or brain ischemia, which is a lack of blood flow, and then the brain shrinks. And it's very obvious when you see it on film. And what's interesting, I don't know if you've read Bredesen's book, uh, End of Alzheimer's. Phenomenal book. He flipped the entire Alzheimer's research community upside down. He was working at the Buck Institute, and rather than three types, he postulates six types of dementia. And when you look at the symptoms, they exactly fit one of those types. But the real cool thing of, for me is that it's exactly the six types of dementia that I divided them based on Chinese medicine. Uh, and what he said is you must treat the root cause. None of the drugs for Alzheimer's works worth a crap. They have hundreds of things they've found to work on the tangles. The problem is Alzheimer's isn't a disease per se. It's a response by the body to an insult. Traumatic injury, air quality, pesticides, anything. The body creates those uh, tangles to protect itself. It's just that we have too much exposure now and it ends up being Alzheimer's disease. And so again, you've got to treat the root cause. You've got to go to what's causing it rather than the symptom. I'm right on time. All right. Be happy. The best form of healing practice, and this shows up all the time, is healing, uh, is, is, is being happy. And being happy can take a lot of practice, right? Being happy is something you may have to work at. So questions? Nope. Yeah. I, I, before that, we'd like to remind our listening audience that this is a program of the Commonwealth Club, Dr. John Neeters, talking about neuroacupuncture for the treatment <laughs> of degenerate, neurodegenerative diseases. So open for question. So my first question is that you started talking about treating pain, right. and pain is very important. If it's chronic pain, I guess it's difficult, but pain is important because it tells you what's, what's wrong. Exactly. And I look at pain, I have patients come in, it's the way most people deal with minor pain. It's like, have you ever had your, the warning light come on your windshield? 
right? It says check engine light. I'm not a new windshield, but your check engine light. And of course, we know the appropriate thing to do with that is to put a piece of duct tape over it so we don't see it anymore, right? <laughs> For example, headaches are never normal. There are no normal headaches. You should never have a headache. So yeah, pain, um, it's now, what's the act? Do you remember the hospital? The Joint Commission now requires acupuncturists to be on staff in every hospital that gets federal funding because of the opioid crisis. So they're being required to do acupuncture instead of opioids, which is more effective and less dangerous right? and cheaper. Hi, Phil. Hi. <laughs> um, when you're using acupuncture to treat MS, is it in conjunction with other things, or can they completely stop, like infusions and other types of treatments? It depends. Kind of my general, I get asked those questions a lot. I'm not anti-drug. I think there are magical drugs out there. I have my list. The ones over here that I hate because they don't work and they cause problems. And the ones over here that don't cause side effects and they work almost all the time. And so, you know, it's kind of in there. But in general, if a patient comes to me, I want them to stay on their medication while we start their treatment. So, for example, if they have um, headaches, uh, high blood pressure is better, okay? They have high blood pressure, and it's controlled with medication. So we treat them until their blood pressure gets low, and then they go back to their doctor to get their blood pressure medication lowered. Same with diabetes. You know, you stay on your diabetes drugs, stay on your metformin uh, as it is. And by the way, my first training in China was, uh, I was one of the first Americans to go study in their diabetes program, which, let me tell you, is light years better than what's done in the U.S. For one thing, one of the things they do differently, they actually follow the AD, American Diabetes Association protocols, which doctors here don't do. <laughs> right. And the biggest I'm a member of the American Diabetes Association, so I get lots of magazines and things. At least maybe one out of 20 articles will have the word cure in it. Otherwise, it's all control. In China, it's cure. That's an expensive problem. They don't want it. You're going to get rid of it. And the way they deal with it is absolutely different than what they do here. So, yeah, so typically, and painkillers, like if someone's on opiates and they don't get pulled off dramatically, I'm going to work with their pain so they can slowly come off of the opiates. Okay, we don't want them to go into withdrawal. Yeah, did that answer your question? Yeah, I just wondered if it could be a complete solution for some people. Oh, yeah, yeah. For absolutely. Uh, MS, I have one patient, my most, acupuncture really doesn't hurt most of the time, but some people are extremely sensitive to sensation. I'm not even going to call it pain, but just any sensation. And I have my most sensitive patient. I can only do four needles on her, and I actually do one needle, then I go out of the room, I come back three minutes later and needle her again until we get to four needles. And so after, and she doesn't want to do any herbs. So after about two months, she came in, and I said, you know, I don't think this is really worth your time and money. I, I don't think we're going to get much in the way of results, because I can't really do enough points, and you don't want to herb, do herbs. She said, oh, well, I just got my MRI back, and my lesions have all shrunk. It's like, okay, <laughs> whatever, right? But typically, if you can do herbs and uh, and change diet. Diet is a huge factor in MS. And that's been known since the 50s. What was his name? Apperly? Apperly. Yeah, I think. He, he printed a diet then that was pretty effective. Now we know so much more about that. And the biggest key to MS is dietary. Second is herbs. Third is acupuncture. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So I have the microphone. Um, <laughs> I have the microphone. <laughs> It was intriguing to hear that you could use acupuncture in certain places on the scalp and the underlying brain region was affected. Um, like Broca's speech area, right? Is there Right there. Is there any uh, sort of validation of looking with MRI or functional MRI in the brain and during that process? Yes, tons. Check out, if you just go to Google and plug something in. There's, uh, and again, the Susan Samueli Center is doing a lot of that research, looking with PET scans and functional MRIs. One of my teachers a guy named, was named Peng Lee. He wasn't doing that specific one on the scalp acupuncture, but he was doing lots of studies on it. Yeah, there's so much information out there, it's really overwhelming. 
Um, I've gone to acupuncture, <clears throat> but should I be using electric stimulation? You talked that was I don't the topic know, of this, right? Because I don't <laughs> know what your case is, and I don't well, know about you. But in let general, me, let me put it this way: everybody has different techniques. There's Japanese style acupuncture. There's Chinese style. There's Korean style. There's the neuropuncture type style. My wife does something very different from for most sports medicine. She, her mentor started treating athletes in the in the eighty Olympics, right? So very different perspective. So for neurodegenerative problems in, and musculoskeletal problems, I doubt that she sees. 10% of her patients that do not get electroacupuncture. It's very rare. Um, and so for me, it's probably 50-50, depending on what I'm treating, uh, just plain acupuncture. Or if I'm just trying, someone comes in with anxiety, I'm usually not doing electroacupuncture. There's a set of points that can bring people down. I mean, they leave, like my office manager calls it AccuStoned. It's like, whoa, all right, right? In fact, sometimes we make them sit for a while before we let them drive home, right? And that's not electroacupuncture. That's, but for musculoskeletal or for uh, neurological, I would always use electroacupuncture on those. A lot of acupuncturists don't get trained to do uh, ac- electroacupuncture. Yeah, a lot of them don't get trained to use electroacupuncture in school, and so then they don't use it in their practice. Um, given that your practice well, hi again. is doing hi, <laughs> um, given that your practice, I mean, is stimulating chemicals in the brain like dopamine, and you know, so are you able to utilize this to treat mental illness? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, severe mental illness is very difficult because the patients often are not compliant, and I can't see them enough. So schizophrenia, um, I would treat mostly with diet, honestly. I mean, there have been studies going back into the 50s with Hoffer and new studies out now, uh, Walsh, um, where he lays out the specific dietary issues that are the problem in severe um, mental, emotional disorders. But for milder things, um, yeah, we do it all the time. Bipolar, yeah. Bipolar is tricky, right? Uh, Depression... And it's been a while since I, I, I may be inaccurate with this. It's been a while since I looked at these numbers. But depression varies tremendously by culture. There are cultures that have no depo- reported depression. And then there's the U.S. where it's like, you know, they're giving out antidepressants like candy, right? My daughter went in with a headache when she was in school. And the nurse practitioner said, oh, here, honey, take these. And she goes, that's Prozac. She goes, yeah, it'll make you feel better. It's like, I have a headache, Right. <laughs> No, not that Prozac can't help headaches, but it was kind of a quick, quick t- <laughs> little response there, right? And, you know, she called me, and we laughed, and so it was good. And I gave her something for a headache. Um, what was your question again? About mental illness. Oh, me- mental illness. So anxiety, depression, uh, I treat all day long, every day. Actually, my number one most represented group of patients are therapists. They're, they're, up, they're high on the food chain, right? They're seeing 40 anxious, depressed patients a week, and by the end of the week, they're toast. One, there was one day I, I counted, there were five therapists on tables in my office at one time, right? So they refer a lot. So things like that we are easy-peasy, right? When you get into things like schizophrenia, and bipolar is tricky because we can handle the depressive part, but when they get manic, they don't come see us, right? So, we, so bipolar, I want people to stay on their meds. Depression, anxiety, a piece of cake. Yeah. Yeah. If you're working with someone with cognitive issues, you don't necessarily know the cause, whether it's a vascular dementia or early onset of Alzheimer's. So how do you, how do you work with that? There are some things that are consistent all the way. For example, uh, with herbs and supplements, there are things that, I, that you can kind of blanket that with a little bit. And a lot of it you can actually tell. For example, we do pulse taking, right? And what you can get out of a pulse would shock the average person. I mean, literally shock them, the things that you can tell. And one of those that you can tell is if there's likely to be ischemia, right? A small vessel disease, hardening of arteries, et cetera. You can feel that in the pulse. And then I like them to go out and get tested. It's like, you know, go use your medical insurance, you know, get an MRI, uh, you know, get uh, your, see if you have any small vessel disease. So I, I refer out a lot to medical doctors. Right. So that's so there's some general things we can do. And then I'd like to get more specific. Right. 
Up here again, I think. No? I came in a little bit late, but you keep saying we, and you talk about treatment. So two questions. One is, who's we? And two is, do you do diagnostics? Yeah. Who there, there, are, there are a couple we's. One, I don't want this to be a sales pitch, right? So we, the community, right? And then we, my office, right? So where I treat most of this, but they're treating ancillary things along with what I'm doing. Um, but we, in treating neurodegenerative diseases, in my opinion, and I don't want to step on anybody's toe, toes, is really a very small part of the acupuncture community. Um, there's very specific training. Like I said, I was very blessed. I studied with Corradino. Um, I've done Pony Chang's classes that I talked about. I had Shu Jui Min as an instructor and Zhao Shunfa, the top two-stroke people in China. And so I have some qualifications. I have some training in it, right? Whereas a lot of acupuncturists don't focus on that. And um, so you don't get the same results. But that was very astute. I do massive diagnostics. I mean, if you sit down with me... Oh, I'm in Alameda. Yeah. And so when you sit down with me, it's about an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half of history and diagnostics. And I'm going to check you your, for heart problems. I'm going to check you for inf uh, infections, all sorts of things. We're going to check out your adrenal glands by using a couple of really easy tests rather than guessing. Yeah. Bill. Oh, you got it over there. Um, I don't know if there's a neural connection, but uh, is there any success using acupuncture for arthritis? Oh, God, yes. Oh. Holy caramba. <laughs> yeah, that's probably one of the first things um, in the U.S. electroacupuncture was used for. Now, rheumatoid's a different story, right? With rheumatoid, we can do things with electroacupuncture, but not directly to the joints, right? That's a different problem. So with rheumatoid, we treat it more with herbs, supplements, and diet, primarily. But osteo, where you get damage, yeah, we've had patients come in, a couple, who were scheduled for hip replacement, right? And they didn't get hip replacement, right? So they were pretty astounded. Now, one of the things I had one of the guys do was get an uh, inversion chair, right? So it's pulling his hip loose. His, he was grinding, right? And so if you get that... Uh, at first, I had his, his family pull on his leg, literally. And he felt so much better, he got an inversion table. And then I would needle, and I needle literally all the way down to the labrum of the hip. And if you do electroacupuncture on the labrum, it can regenerate. Honest to goodness. Same with the knees. Uh, if you needle under the kneecap, you can get that to regenerate. If it's completely gone, then it's, you can't get it to regenerate. But up until the point where it's completely gone, you can often get that. She deals with a lot of arthritis. Yeah. I, me, not so much anymore. I've, I've gotten lazy and I kind of stick to the things I like. <laughs> yes. Oh, Phil. Uh, hi, John. Uh, I wanted to ask about mirror neurons. Oh, oh I'm my sorry. God. Memory neurons. Memory neurons. Where, the, where we, we have, when we have a traumatic incident in our life, and then we go through life with this memory neuron that's blocking energy with anything that's associated with the incident that keeps us from being fully active and fully participatory. So how, how can acupuncture be of use for memory neuron? Yeah. Um, I don't use that term, but basically it's the same thing. So in patients with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or severe anxiety states, what happens is they keep, you know, it, I, I, I don't remember the statistics. It was like 5 to 10% of uh, the military coming back from war zones a few years ago were diagnosed with PTSD when they came back. In six months, it was up to about 25%. Because it doesn't get better, it only gets worse. Because the brain doesn't do a very good job of distinguishing something that's actually happening to your body now or a memory of what's happening to your body. And in neurology, they say nerves that fire together, wire together. So they cross-link. And so you're getting far more connections. And that's one of the problems. So what we work to do is create new networks. 
It's kind of like dementia. You know, people can have Alzheimer's and have no symptoms if they keep really, really active, their brain really active, because they develop workarounds. Uh, The nun study from 20 years ago was fascinating for that, where they proved that the women, the nuns that stayed the most active, even though on autopsy they showed all the symptoms or all the signs of Alzheimer's, didn't have any symptoms because they would work around. And that's the amazing thing. You see all these uh, neuroplasticity things happening. It's magic. I have patients who, not through what I'm doing, but their neuroplasticity work, their lives have completely changed. who have had massive trauma their whole life. And, and that trauma gets locked in in a variety of ways, right? It's in the brain, but it also, or the way we hold our musculature, et cetera, that affects blood flow. Everything's damaged. Her whole life is different now that she's been doing neuroplasticity training. It's magic. And then I do what I do, and she does that, and totally different human being. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, this just a uh, curiosity. This is not, you know, specifically you, but I was curious as to acupuncture in general. How much pushback from big pharma and the medical industry has uh, it received? Very little, because we're too small, <laughs> right? So we're not taking a big bite out of the apple. So they just kind of ignore us. Um, they don't, I mean, you, the pharmaceutical companies spent $50 billion in China studying Chinese herbal medicine. They know it works. They're trying to find a way to patent the specifics and then sell them. But until they can find a way to patent it, they're never going to let the research out that they know that it works. I mean, do you know how many of our drugs are derived from plants? Metformin, uh, French lilac, right? Digoxin I have a patient on. That's fox. These are all Chinese herbs, um, or herbs, not just Chinese. So no, to to answer your question, basically none. They just ignore us. Hi. Besides um, helping people with Parkinson's with the tremors, Uh what could acupuncture do for people with Parkinson's? Yeah, um, we reestablish... Again, this, the woman that I was mentioning um, that does the Parkinson's project, and she says, I do not know if this is true. She says there are 50,000 neural connections between the heart and the brain. And when those get blocked, uh, and she talks, you know, point, shows pictures of Hitler and other people who have severe emotional issues, or like uh, Phil was mentioning, where you get a blockage from trauma, um, and it's reestablishing the proper flow. And yes, I've seen Parkinson's patients get dramatically better. I would never say they're cured because I don't know, but they, the symptoms get dramatically better. Um, one more question. Yeah. How, how long have people been using acupuncture for Parkinson's? Or, yeah. We don't know because in China, they didn't uh, have disease names. Right? They didn't say, this is Parkinson's, this is MS. They had very different de- uh, descriptors. And so we kind of have to look and look at the symptoms, because the Chinese developed huge numbers of case studies. And so you look in at the case studies, and then you have to see, ah, this patient had tremors, they had a, a gait problem, they had facial rigidity, etc., and assume that it's Parkinson's. And that goes back 2,000 years. Now, the closer, the farther we come to the present, the more we see the rise of neurological problems, right? Now, not traumatic injury. They had plenty of that. But in terms of other problems, we have so many environmental issues that are triggering those things. I mean, um, I have a friend that I, of, of a woman that I know. Her mother, I told her 20 years ago, look, you've got to stay out of your garden and all those pesticides and stop with the aspartame. And she didn't, and she has Parkinson's. But those are predictable. Pesticides are a known stimulator. Head blows are a known stimulator, right? The thing I don't get any results with is ALS. I have not gotten any positive results. Now, I studied with a guy in China for a limited period of time who was famous as the top ALS guy in China because he was diagnosed with ALS like 13 years before, and he still works all day. That's unheard of, but I don't get his success. Maybe because he gave people 400-gram formulas a day. My patients wouldn't do that. <laughs> but he, he actually said most of his success with ALS was from doing Qigong, That's of his personal success. Hi. I'm just wondering if, um, if a patient has had MS, say, for 40 years, would 
if she were to go to see you, would, would she still have an ability to improve? Yes, possibly. You know, again, everything's case by case, right? Um, and the longer something's in, you know, a problem, the harder it is to reverse it. But I've had patients come in with MS for decades who did get better. Uh, and I don't ever promise patients that they're going to cure it, right? My first goal is to stop the progression, right? That's, and usually patients are happy with that. They're really happy when they get to throw away their walkers and, and things like that. But again, it's one of those things I could never even say that it, in the Chinese literature it would say this is healed. And because they didn't have brain scans, they didn't have ability to, to do blood work, etc. But it meant that people were no longer having symptoms. But it's like herpes viruses, they never die. They just go up there and hide. So Epstein-Barr, you know, cytomegalovirus, et cetera. So I would never say they're cured. I would say we've got it in remission. Yeah. Okay, we've come to the point in our program where we have time for only one last question. Ooh, who's got the good one? Right here. All right. Hi. Is it ever used to treat eating disorders? Oh, my God, all the time. There are very specific, there's something called a NADA protocol, um, a detox protocol that is used all over the country. Uh, it's very simple. It's usually f about five needles. There's slight variations. And it's probably the most popular treatment with acupuncture in the United States. And they do what's called battlefield acupuncture, where they'll go into trauma areas, just sit people up in chairs and just do that treatment. Uh, when I have someone with, a, with an eating, I mean, it depends on how severe, right? Uh, uh, eating disorder, I would like them to get some cognitive behavior therapy to go along with what I'm doing. But, for example, I'll have them come in once a week where I'll examine them and treat them and then let them and ask them to drop in every day for free on, on their way home from work, and we then do that protocol. And it's the same protocol for any form of addiction, smoking, eating, Heroin, same protocol. Really easy, really inexpensive. And the really nice thing about that is I'm going to give a plug to community-style acupuncture. They're really good at that, and they're really inexpensive. I would not go there for neurodegenerative diseases. They're kind of not set up for that. But for this, they just it's cheap, and it's easy, and uh, yeah, go for it. What is that protocol called? NADA. So please uh, join me in thanking Dr. John Neaters for his informative talk this and, evening. And thank, thank you, you very much. All right. Thanks. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. Is this when the party starts?